GCC, Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. I was actually just chatting with somebody the other day um, about, you know, some of the silver linings of this pandemic. And that was another point that I made around, you know, there's something really interesting about the fact that we're all like confined to the four walls of our own home that has somehow broken down some of these barriers um, that we may have faced earlier. And that's a really interesting one, the geographic barriers in terms of where we might invest. Dina Shakir is a partner at Lux Capital, a $2.4 billion stage and sector agnostic VC firm that is looking to back mission-driven entrepreneurs in frontier sectors. Dina is the first-generation daughter of immigrants from Iraq and has grown up in Silicon Valley even before she realized she wanted a career in tech. A former journalist and then a diplomat, Dina led strategic partnerships for early-stage products at Google before joining Google Ventures. At Lux, she has led the fund's investments in companies like Moss, Shiro, and Neo, all really ambitious teams and businesses in their own right. In this episode, we've discussed topics such as building conviction in deep tech, investing in category-defining technologies across all stages, and standing behind founding teams for the long term. We also talked about identifying grit and ambition with entrepreneurs and finding founders with a chip on their shoulder. All right, let's get to it for the rest. Hey, Dina. Thanks for tuning in today and talking with us. Hi, Rina. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've known each other um, since college, uh, and I know a lot about you, but I'm guessing some people who are listening in today might not be as familiar. Um, for anybody who you know doesn't know about your history or your background, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Lux Capital and what you were doing before? Sure. Um, I'm happy to. So um, I joined Lux about 10 months ago, and prior to that, have a pretty non-traditional background um, for somebody in venture. The last few years was um, at Google Ventures, GV, I should say, the artist formerly known as Google Ventures. And before that, spent about five years working on early stage product across a number of different areas at Google. A lot of time working on healthcare, including helping build out Google's very first HIPAA compliant product, working on X, and everything from Google Hire to Google Civic products and fiber and everything in between. And I actually started off my career after grad school in the public sector working in the Obama administration. Yeah, so I guess like that experience, you know, is giving you a completely different perspective as you look into the U.S. politics. We're not going to that today. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's always interesting to me when a lot of these uh, friends and investors I know were coming from non-orthodox like paths that lead them to investing. Uh, and I, I'm always amazed because I think like the doing different things in your past before you actually get to invest gives you a lot of like perspective and creativity and helps you look at the world different. Have you also like seen that? Do you think you look at the world and look at potential deals differently than some of the other investors you encounter with who do have like this more classic orthodox um, journeys that took them there? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's no one way to be a good investor. Um, I've 
you know, encountered so many people who I admire who come from, you know, everything from your traditional finance path to the operator, um, entrepreneur with an exit path to your, you know, business school path and everything in between. From my perspective, having spent, you know, worked on such a breadth of different types of products and everything from, you know, a, the public sector to, you know, to a Google type of company, I do feel that I am able to, you know, apply the networks and the and these skill sets to the companies that I'm spending time with. I think that it gives me a perspective in terms of the thesis that I'm developing and sort of the way that I think about everything from go to market to just the sort of theories of change. It's definitely helpful for me as, as somebody who comes from an operating background, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I completely hear that. You know, actually, when I was kind of preparing for um, this this chat, I was thinking about what lux means. And I like looked up and looked into it, and it apparently means uh, light in Latin. Mm-hmm. And I think this is because you guys, as a firm, um, strive to look where not many others are looking, uh, namely kind of the intersection of science and entrepreneurship. Um, how do you guys manage to build conviction and invest in like what we might consider frontier categories across multiple disciplines when, you know, the stuff that you're investing in is like sometimes so out there or so deep tech um, that a generalist VC might not be as well equipped? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I love that you brought the name into it. It's, it does indeed mean light. And there's so many puns we could use, but I'll spare you. <laughs> I'll spare you them. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, when you think about frontier tech or deep tech, you know, we, it's not just sort of the, the nature of the companies that we're looking at, but also the types of entrepreneurs. We really pride ourselves in investing in sort of the rebel entrepreneurs, the archetype, if you will, of a Lux founder. It's somebody who goes against the grain. If you take a look at kind of the incredible founders who have had some really successful exits in our portfolios, they, they very much meet those criteria. And so the type of company is absolutely part of it from a thesis perspective, but we are very much looking also for um, a certain type of founder who is really a rebel, uh, somebody who has a chip on their shoulder. You know, our one of our founders, um, Josh Wolf, has a, a quote that I think somebody actually put on a t-shirt at some point that chips on your shoulder make chips in pockets, um, which I I love, <laughs> but it's That's totally, great. I love that. And, and if you notice, you know, looking at the stories of, of, of us partners across the fund, we all sort of have something about our backgrounds that gives us that chip on our shoulder. Yeah. So speaking of um, founders that are going against the green, there is this widespread notion that with the rapid proliferation of tech, you know, people like some people think that we should have attacked and targeted bigger problems that humanity is facing. You know, people, more people should have been like trying to colonize Mars or, you know, solve the global warming problem instead of like trying to optimize how quickly we get our lunch, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so you guys do look for and invest in these aspirational founders and companies, as you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, this is obviously good for humanity. But is this also good business? I mean, does it fall within the parameters of venture investing, given like the timelines that we operate in? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It has to for us. I mean, we are by definition, we're not impact investors. And what we're optimizing for um, ultimately is to to make a healthy return and to be stewards of capital for our LPs, many of which are themselves uh, philanthropic institutions and, you know, are having it, making an impact in their own way. So that is absolutely our, our primary motivation. And we're lucky enough to be investing in companies that are also, by virtue of what they're working on, 
solving really meaningful problems in their own right. But partially as a function of being a, a large fund, we have $2.5 billion in terms of uh, dollars under management. We have to be solving large problems. Mm-hmm. There has to be a, a large outcome uh, as a result. And, you know, oftentimes when you're solving some of the world's largest problems, those are going to be some large markets. So, you know, those don't necessarily have to be um, dichotomous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm glad actually you brought up impact investing because, I mean, your past, you did touch impact investing in your past, I think, prior to Lux. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, I think impact investing means a whole lot of different things to different people. But the way Lux defines, I think, its investment strategy as backing ideas that have the capacity to inflict significant and positive change on humanity. Mm-hmm. Do you personally, I mean, you've said that you're not impact investing, but in my mind, when you describe what Lux does and what you guys are looking for, it is impact investing to me. So what do you think about that? You know, I think that the term impact investing is can be problematic, unclear what it even means anymore. And it's actually, I worked in the office in the Department of State that coined that term. I think it's, it's, people can kind of argue about where it came from. But there are some who say that it was Secretary Clinton who actually helped coin that term back in the day. So I I think there's no point sort of arguing over semantics, um, really about that term. But the question is, like, are you optimizing for social impact or are you optimizing for uh, a venture-sized return? And uh, sort of what I was saying earlier is I don't necessarily think that those two things need to be dichotomous. And the idea of sort of impact investing traditionally has been that that they don't have to be, but that they're sort of equal and that there's this whole notion of a B Corp and all of those things. And that's not really the way that we think about uh, our investments. We invest in in for-profit businesses. Um, you know, we invest in everything from healthcare and biotech to hardware to, you know, enterprise SaaS and everything in between. And so these are not necessarily the types of businesses that if you look through the portfolio that one might even necessarily characterize as impact, Mm -hmm. but they are solving real problems. Um, And they are, you know, incredibly innovative scientific breakthroughs. So that's really where sort of more how we define ourselves rather than necessarily as as an, an impact driven fun. Yeah, I think I think we need a new term, to be honest with you, I think, you know, because I think the way that a lot of these growth funds like Lux or like, you know, investors invest in like these huge markets, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to solve huge problems, also making huge profits in mm-hmm. return, you know, there has to be a new term, it seems. Um, so again, like coming back to the type of team that you guys have and, you know, more than $2 billion asset under management. Um, but you also, I think, invest in different stages of a company's life mm-hmm. cycle. I think I read on your website that you can make any investment ranging from 50000 to $50 million, which is a, you know, huge range. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also do invest across categories and sectors in addition to this stage. But you don't have a massive team. I think you have only 20 people. Right. How is it possible for you guys to keep the focus and build the expertise that you not only find the best deals, but also like continue to add value to the portfolio companies that you invest in? Yeah, that's a great question. You're right. We, um, it's actually one of the reasons I was so excited to join this team. It, it's a small and scrappy team. And yet I have found that we are able to add value uh, in a way that it's so hands-on and meaningful to the portfolio that it actually is, you know, in, in many ways, I think competitive with some of the larger funds that I've actually been a part of in the past in many ways, even ones with very big operational teams. Our investment team 
it's the same team looking at everything from new co-incubation and seed deals all the way through the later stage deals that we're looking at. And we take a very, you know, thesis driven approach to the way that we look at companies. So, you know, we have a very um, technical team. We have a lot of PhDs on our team. We have, you know, we have folks who really understand spaces. We've spent a lot of time looking at industries and companies, the companies that we invest in help us to think through problems and formulate ideas around the next type of company that we should be investing in. So we really kind of, we, we know our shit, right? So <laughs> that is, um, regardless of whether that means we're going to be like helping to form a new company or taking a look at another company, it really is just a very informed way of, of making an investment. And that's, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of intellectual rigor that goes into the investment decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that was very important to me um, when thinking about the, a fund to join. And that's regardless of, again, the stage of the investment. Obviously, when you're evaluating a decision at a, you know, at a more growth type stage versus, you know, founding type stage, you're looking at different metrics or in some cases, no metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's just math. And, you know, we should all be doing that. This is our job. We should be able to do that. But at the end of the day, it's about knowing and understanding the spaces and having a really good cross section across the partnership of skills, people who understand product, who understand, um, you know, uh, everything from hardware to software to NLP. And so we really complement each other really well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess like the key, one of the key aspects is like having a combination of people who are complementary to each other, you know, either with operating backgrounds or financial backgrounds or people from academia and, you know, um, so that, that, you know, 20 people isn't that small. It's just, I think we're getting so used to these like ginormous funds with, uh, you have massive teams and platforms that 20 sounds little, except 20 is like a sizable number. So kind of like want to bring... It's actually less than 20 on the investing side. Oh, it is? It is? Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, we're quite small, but we are closely knit and try to be prolific. <laughs> sure. Um, kind of want to bring it to um, your you know, personal background, because I'm mm-hmm. personally fascinated by people who are coming from immigrant parents or immigrant families and, you know, have gone through like different journeys through their families and, and getting where they are. Um, so you're the daughter of immigrant parents from Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. I think you put yourself through college. You had a lot of side hustles, I think, as you called it somewhere in your bio, mm-hmm. um, even starting from a young age. And I, this is something I see often with you know, descendants from immigrant parents, Mm -hmm. um, there's an undeniable survival instinct and work ethic that translates itself into grit and almost in founders in the immigrant community as well. Mm -hmm. This is invaluable uh, when you're trying to build a business from scratch or when you're trying to scale it. So you probably have that too, and you recognize that um, talent. Uh, Do you seek that uh, quality out in, you know, diverse set of founders, or do you find yourself naturally gravitating towards such founders who are coming from similar backgrounds, usually because they're overlooked by others, but maybe you might be able to pinpoint the diamond in the rough? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually think, you know, that's one example of, of grit is somebody who, you know, like myself comes from, uh, whether it's an immigrant background, or there's so many different types of marginalized or vulnerable communities, or, you know, uh, different backgrounds that can give you that chip on your shoulder, as I said earlier. Um, but that's absolutely a criteria I love to look for in a founder and what we look for in our partners as well. Every single person around the table has that and it, it gives us 
a work ethic and a hustle that is incomparable. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to come from that specific type of background. I've seen founders who actually come from very, very privileged backgrounds, Mm -hmm. but perhaps it is that privilege that gives them that chip on their shoulder, wanting to outshine the parents or the privilege that they they came from. So I try to be really open-minded and not like, have a, a template in my mind of the type of person that I'm looking for because I've sort of seen it all. But there's definitely that sort of that grit and that hustle that is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. So for any, I mean, I think you coined it really well. I mean, immigrant is just one aspect. There is like a huge pool of marginalized founder base mm-hmm. in the US and the world. And this could be, you know, stemming from like them being immigrants or them coming from like diverse backgrounds, you know, their gender, sexual orientation, their Uh, economic status, a lot of different aspects that could have played into that role. And my personal experience is that when a founder is coming from like a marginalized community and haven't had a lot of the resources and infrastructures that, you know, others might have had, they're usually rough around the edges. They might know their tech, they might have killer product, but because they're so rough around the edges, the way they present, the way they pitch to a VC, it's not as flashy and they're usually overlooked. Mm. Do you think you might have an edge there because you're coming from potentially a marginalized background that you can see through that and maybe catch on opportunities that others might be you know, inclined to dismiss quickly? That's interesting. Um, you know, I think it's possible. I do think it's really, you know, we, I believe storytelling and narrative is, in, is incredibly powerful. It's something that is just a critical skill in a founder and in a leader. And so that is something, whether it's, you know, I don't think it's marketing or packaging, but I think it's something that is essential in leadership. But I also think that that's something that um, to some extent, it's not necessarily something that you can coach, right? So there's sort of an element of that aspect that doesn't need to be associated with the privilege that you come from. So, you know, I feel like if you have that sort of seed of grit, hustle, and, you know, passion and, and the ability to like engender Uh, excitement and tell a story, then, you know, the rest of it can come together. And I feel that because I've seen different stages of companies grow over time and products grow over time, and I've seen those founders mature over time, like I can sort of spot that earlier on. Mm -hmm. But that's absolutely a good point. And it doesn't always look the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's sometimes sad to hear that you can't coach that into a founder, because sometimes you just like see like, a, you know, a founder or like a team of co-founders who are great with one mm-hmm. thing and you just kind of want to shine them up a little bit so that they can craft a better story and, you know, ignite energy in the people they're talking with when they're talking about their product. But you're right. It's not necessarily about where you come from or but more necessarily about personality and character and, and your vibe, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I think Lux Capital originally started in New York City mm-hmm. and then moved to Silicon Valley. I'm correct, right? Well, we actually, we're still bi-coastal. So we, half our team is in New York and half in the Bay Area. Okay. So that is indicative of the, you know, mainstream story that if you want to make it big time, especially you ha- like in the US and North America or uh, some of the largest markets in the world, you have to be based in Silicon Valley. Um, to be able to compete or have the type of impact that you want to have. Was that the reason you think uh, Lux actually made that move and now is bi-coastal or was it something different? So, I mean, that predates me, but I don't necessarily think that that was the reason per se, because we still, you know, half our team numbers wise is in New York Mm -hmm. and, you know, 
we've got two co-founders, Josh and Peter, and one of them is there and one is here. And many of our companies are also East Coast based. Um, many of our new companies are also being formed there. We actually think it gives us a bit of an edge um, to have boots on the ground there, especially with, you know, there's such a large volume of companies that are out here in Silicon Valley. So, you know, of course, we think it's important to have presence here. And that's why many of us are here. And at the same time, though, we think that there is a lot of talent, often overlooked talent um, in other places of the country. And so the ability to have presence on both coasts is very important to us. But we have investments all over the country and um, and also in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So geography, especially in these days where, you know, we're all actually sitting in our living rooms and yeah. bedrooms anyway, doesn't really, ma- doesn't really matter as much anymore. Yeah, I was, I was actually a couple of weeks ago talking with our common friend, Rebecca from mm-hmm. USV. And she was saying, um, you know, she had met this company over like a Zoom call and was like really excited about it and then took it back to her partners. And then like somewhat during the conversation, maybe like 15, 20 minutes into it, she remembered to ask where these founders were from or where they were based. And mm-hmm. she finds out suddenly that they're based in Latvia. She was like, okay, I mean, it doesn't matter too much, but- she Forgot. Yeah, she forgot yeah. to ask, right? It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. really matter. But I mean, in making investments in places where you're probably not as familiar with because it's not in North America, say in Europe or like an emerging market, mm-hmm. what would you at a minimum need to see? Like, would you invest in, you know, companies that are working on like a regional problem, even if like it proves to be great scale, is that too scary for you or would you feel comfortable? Yeah, that's fascinating, by the way, that Rebecca said that story. I was actually just chatting with somebody the other day um, about, you know, some of the silver linings of this pandemic. And Mm -hmm. that was another point that I made around, you know, there's something really interesting about the fact that we're all like confined to the four walls of our own home that has somehow broken down some of these barriers. Yeah. Um, that we may have faced earlier. And that's a really interesting one, the geographic barriers in terms of where we might invest. To answer your question, um, you know, for me, it's less about like where the company is per se, except that, you know, how does that give them an edge? And why are they there? Are they there because there's better talent there? Are they there because, you know, there's some real estate reason for them to be there? Are they there because the market is, for whatever reason, they're optimizing to be in that locality? Is there some XYZ other reason? Mm -hmm. Certainly, as you think about Series A and taking a board seat and all of that there, you know, you want to also be able to have your own advantage from knowing a market. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time in the Middle myself. It's not only where I'm from personally, also, you know, what I studied and, and where I've spent some time professionally. So if I'm looking at that market, I actually have spent some time there. But the size of the market is also really just something big to consider. And that has been challenging in the past. But there are some pretty good exits that are coming out of some, you know, other parts of the world, including a company that you <laughs> recently that you yourself <laughs> were involved in founding. So yeah, thank you for setting some great examples. So those of us can start to invest more <laughs> in, in those parts of the world. Sure. I can't say we like, did anything significantly to improve humanity. I think we just like help them spend, you know, their pastimes better by providing games. But yeah, you created jobs that's improving humanity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I do believe that. I mean, obviously, I'm like an ex founder who created an impactful business from a country like Turkey. Yeah. And there are, you know, many others coming from the Middle East in Eastern Europe. And since you are um, Middle Eastern, like originally uh, through your family, Mm -hmm. do you look at the Middle East? Do you you try to look for opportunities to do something there, to invest, to bridge the 
um, you know, invisible bridge through Silicon Valley to, you know, anywhere in the Middle East? Do you look out for opportunities? So I spend a lot of time outside of my day job doing that. Um, I've been involved um, as a board member and advisor for a nonprofit called Tech Wadi um, for many years now. Wadi means valley in Arabic. So it's a nonprofit based in Silicon Valley that's focused on kind of building bridges between the uh, Silicon Valley and, and the region. And in doing so, I, I help connect a lot of companies and founders from the region with both investors and BD opportunities out here and mentor. And that's something that's very important to me. In fact, part of the motivation for me even leaving my job in DC to come out here was motivated by the Arab Spring, actually, and seeing the power of technology and changing lives on the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's always been sort of that connection back to the region. And even joining government in the first place was actually motivated by the power of entrepreneurship to change lives and create jobs. When President Obama gave this big speech in Cairo in 2009, and I was actually uh, an intern journalist uh, with the BBC helping cover that speech. So there's always been this tie back to entrepreneurship and technology and job creation in the region, even though that's not what I focus on now in terms of where I spend my time looking at companies, mm -hmm. just because it's not where I'm based, not where I'm an advantage, not where my network is, but absolutely where a lot of my personal passions are. Yeah, I mean, I think also creating visibility for this part of the world, um, for underrepresented regions, deserving countries, it goes like, you know, like a long way, basically in connecting these founders to established ecosystems. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the times they talk to like, you know, um, VCs in the US who have family or connections um, back home in, you know, emerging parts of the world. And they say, you know, that's not like you, not my day job, but I spend a lot of my personal time in doing that. And they don't realize, I think, how impactful that is usually, mm -hmm. um, you know, being based in Turkey, having been on the receiving end of such help uh, from others, I can tell that it's, it's super, super helpful. So I wish we had more of you guys mm -hmm. in Palo Alto or in Bay Area doing similar things. You know, and I, I did spend a lot of my uh, career having that be my day job too, right? Yeah. Like it is a large part of what I focused on. So I feel like I've kind of experimented with different modes of how to be impactful. And, sure. and, sure. and I'm sure I will continue to do that in the future. So. Sure, I can totally, yeah, I, I, I see that, so... Um, this was really fun. And with every episode, we close it off with three quick fire questions. Um, so if you're ready, they're pretty harmless, but if you're ready, let's get started. Okay. So, um, say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want in the world. Uh, which city would you live in? Oh, that's an easy one. That would be Paris. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Oh, I love Paris. I mean, who doesn't? The city of love. I spent half a summer there in college and it's just beautiful, amazing city. Yeah. So much. Yeah. The architecture, the art, everything. Yeah. I'm yeah. dying to go back. No wonder. Um, so if you had to rename Lux Capital, what would you name it? You talked about our name. I actually think our name is so clever. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. It is. <laughs> um, so you would call it Light Capital instead. <laughs> Light Capital. I know. Um, I'd have to think of some other really clever name. Um, maybe Veritas Capital. Some, something. Oh, some, okay. something that, yeah. Although perhaps there's too much, of a, too much of a Harvard connection there. But. I know exactly. All my matter. <laughs> we'll excuse that. If you had to donate your whole net worth into one private company. Uh, which company would it be? This was an interesting question because I noticed you used the word donate. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but then you said private company. So yeah. maybe I'm going to ask you a follow up question. <laughs> Did you mean like invest? 
So like, am I investing into it? I'm going to have to change this question because this is usually like what everybody asks. Uh, I was trying to be smart because I didn't want investors to pick their own portfolio companies. Mm. So I said donate. So pick like with any company with a big mission, but it doesn't matter. Like just let's use it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you donate or invest one company that you're super bullish on that you believe in. That's not in my portfolio. Well, hopefully, I mean, better if it's not in your portfolio, I guess. Okay. I am, well, this is not in my current portfolio, although it was in the GV portfolio, but I'm a big fan of Andela, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that company. So that's probably um, one company that I, it's doing quite well. They're, you know, working on training and recruiting software developers across Africa. I think there's tremendous potential, not only across the continent there, but um, really globally especially with more and more companies hiring remote workers. So great. I think it's like very befitting with what the world's going through. So absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of use for their services right now. Um, Dina, thank you so much for joining. Uh, This was a lot of fun. I'd say come back, but I guess uh, I'll see you some other time. I know. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was definitely fun. And um, hopefully we'll have the chance at some point to see each other in, in real life. All right. Take care. Take care, Rina. Thanks. It's interesting how Dina and Lux are looking for founders with a chip on their shoulder, with the true need of something to prove and the grit to sustain the work that's required for that purpose. That ambition can come from anywhere and could be ignited literally by anything. It's becoming a pattern where investors with immigrant backgrounds understand the telltale signs maybe a bit more easily than others, pinpointing the necessary qualities in foreign teams or immigrant co-founders earlier. We're used to seeing international teams attacking massive regional problems and creating huge businesses, but it's also possible to create deep tech-focused, category-defining companies from the underserved parts of the world, hoping to see examples of that happening more frequently in the next few years. Thank you for tuning in. See you at later episodes. Cheers. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.